Well, here we are at the very, very end of this epic account, the end of the story of Kings. And I wonder how you're feeling at this point. We've been in the midst of this historic action-packed drama for, for pretty much two months solidly now. And I imagine we're feeling pretty tired, pretty tired, tired of hearing about all of these kings, all these people who time and time again failed, disappointed, did the exact opposite of what God had called them to do. And just a, a brief recap for you, if that would be helpful. I'm going to start at the back, kind of going back in time to the very beginning of our timeline. And remember where we started all those weeks ago, right back here with King Solomon. That might seem like a, don't worry, I don't want to, <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> That might seem like a distant memory for you, King Solomon, the great, the wise, the wealthy, but also the womanizer and the idol worshipper, right back at the beginning. And from there, things just got worse as we moved along because we had the division of the kingdom. Remember Rehoboam and Jeroboam, north and south, Israel and Judah, division and disaster. Well, then we were introduced to the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. They were kind of the megaphones for God to a deaf and rebellious people, and yet the kings and the people, time and time again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. During their spell, well, we hear about people like Ahab and Jezebel as time moves forwards, and they're some of the worst of the bunch. They kind of pretty much kill anybody who disagrees with them, even Naboth, for the sake of his vineyard. Now, we did see some flickers of hope as we moved on in Kings. We heard of people like uh, Naaman, Naaman, who was that, that guy who had everything but also had leprosy. And so he goes to Elisha and he's healed. And he recognizes that God and God alone is God. Great, good news. But he's a Syrian general, not a king of God's people. And from this point, as we, as we enter into the second half of two kings, well, things just go from bad to worse. And we can capture the, the history of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, in just a few words. Attacked, surrounded, starved, saved, but 10 chapters worth of kings who rejected God, and we then get God's judgment, defeated, destroyed, taken into exile. And at this point in the story, things have gotten real bad. But we've still got Judah, the people in the southern kingdom, They've literally just seen what's happened to their neighbors. And surely, surely they won't ignore the warnings of God as Israel had done. Surely they'll change their ways. And maybe, just maybe, they will. Because we're told about kings like Josiah. Did you? There we go. We've got kings, and we've got kings like Josiah. Now remember Josiah, the boy king who was crowned at the age of just eight Remember how he rediscovered the book of the law, God's law, and how he sought to completely transform the land, pull down the idols. And we're thinking, at last, that fresh start. This is the king we've been waiting for. But the problem is, we saw last week, didn't we, that it was too little, too late. For generations, Judah and its kings had done what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, that repeated phrase. Innocent blood shed, injustice, idolatry. Such was the evil that Judah had done that God said he would bring disaster on Jerusalem and on Judah 
and that he would do to them what he had done to Israel. We're told of this image that God would, was going to wipe Judah out like a person wiping dishes. It's a striking image, kind of bang and the dirt is gone. Like some kind of terrifying advert for fairy washing up liquid, God had declared judgment against his people. And not even a good king like Josiah was going to change that. Rather than being a fresh start that we were hoping for, well, we, we see that Josiah is almost just like painting over mold. If you've, uh, if you've lived in a student house before, I remember my times uh, down in Southampton, and in the corner of my room there was a, a bit of mold that I could not get out. And eventually, whilst well, I'm going to do something about this, I was going to be an active student, yeah, unusual. And I decided to try and paint over this bit of mold. The landlord wasn't going to. And for a while, it looked fresh, it looked clean. But what happens after a while with mold? Well, it came back, back into that nasty, damp corner. And that's a little bit like what we see here with Josiah. He's a, he's a breath of fresh air, but the rot of Judah's rebellion against God was too deeply ingrained. And this brings us on to the closing scenes in this drama of Kings, the final act. But with every drama, well, there is a soundtrack, a soundtrack that goes with the drama. We've heard of the Line of Duty soundtrack, but I want to think about the soundtrack for Kings this evening. So I need four willing volunteers to help me think how we're feeling about Kings. So hands up, anyone would like to volunteer? Someone to be really excited? Anyone keen for that? Come on, Pippa, come to the front. Sounds so excited to be excited. This is good. Fantastic. Uh, someone to be sad. Anyone want to be sad? <laughs> Evie, going to be sad for us? Be sad that you've been volunteered. There you go. Who would you mind standing just over there for us? We can spread you out a bit. Fantastic. Someone to be really upset, devastated. Uh, that's for you. Do you want to move up a bit, pepping it for you long? Someone to be really sad, uh, upset, devastatedly upset. Sarah's going to be devastated, upset. Slightly concerning. Uh, and it's someone so really excited. So excited. Pumped. So you've got happy. No, no, that's excited. This is happy. Sorry, I'm getting my emojis confused. That's excited. This is happy. Someone wants to be happy. Come on, Hannah. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Great. Okay, now, the trick is, thank you very much, Hannah. I would... <laughs> That's a compliment. Okay, I want you this evening to point to the emoji that this piece of music that I'll play for us now makes you feel, okay? So you can all point when you hear the piece of music. How does this make you feel? What do you reckon? Have a point. Some people are saying excited. Some people are saying happy. No one for upset or sad. Yeah. Okay, fairly straightforward. We're either happy or excited. I mean, the song is called Happy. It's you know, not, not too complicated. But how about something like this? But what does it make you feel, Pepper? Wait, how are you feeling? Bit sad? Have a point. What do you reckon? Sad. Maybe not quite really upset yet. We're landing on sad. All right, thank you, Lewis. Enough of that. How about our next one? Yeah, what do you reckon? What do you reckon? Excited? Yeah, I think I'm feeling excited. 
Yeah. For sure, right? We're getting towards the final. Robbie, are you happy? I thought you were pointing out upset. <laughs> upset that, you know, your favorite contestant went out, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Final one. Final one. Get ready to point. How does this make you feel? Sad music. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, I think we're in agreement. That makes us feel really upset. Do you know what that song was called? It was called Sad Emotional Piano. And I think it did the job. <laughs> it did the job. Um, thank you, my emojis. You can put your, your masks down. Very good job. Thank you. Anyway, so yeah, great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good, good. Okay, now, if there was a soundtrack to our passage this evening, a piece of music to capture how 2 Kings 25 makes us feel, well, it's that last one. It's the sad emotional piano. <laughs> because what we're looking at today is serious. It's somber. It is, if you like, a heartbreaking drama that captures what is about to come. Now keep that, keep that kind of music in mind, if you like, as a backing track to what we're thinking about. As this series comes to a close, we're feeling pretty desperate for a conclusion. An ending that gives us some kind of hope. Searching for hope, some good news, some light in the midst of all of this darkness. And so in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, you can turn there now. It's going to skip over a few chapters, so we're ready for chapter 25 in a moment. Will we look to Josiah's son, to King Jehoahaz? There he is. Do we find hope with this king? Well, having reigned for only three months, we're told that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then he's captured and imprisoned by Pharaoh in Egypt. So there is no hope there. Well, how about in the next king, in King Jehoiakim? Well, he lasts a little bit longer. He's king for 11 years. But how does he use that time? Well, again, we're told he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's that injustice, that idolatry that we've seen so many times before. And it's during this time that we begin to see, step by step, God's judgment on Judah beginning to unfold. The judgment that was promised before by God. Because during Jehoiakim's reign, we're introduced to this guy. He's called Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon, which at this point was a huge superpower. Think Roman Empire from your history lessons. Think perhaps China today. Huge, powerful, dangerous. And it's, Jeho- and it's as Jehoiakim is king, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, well, they invade Judah. And for three years, God's people are under Babylonian rule. Eventually, they're, they're able to rebel and to throw off the Babylonians. But things are looking bad for God's people. So there is no hope there either. Well, how about the next king, King Jehoiachin? Well, do you think he does evil in the eyes of the Lord? Any guesses? Yeah, yeah, he does. No surprise. And just three months into his reign, when Nebuchadnezzar returns, and this time he means business, he advances on Jerusalem. The Babylonian armies besiege the city and take a whole bunch of people back into Babylon, into exile. And worst of all, King Jehoiachin, who we've just met, well, he's taken with them. I hope you weren't placing your hope in him because there he goes. 
off into the distance, into a distant land as a prisoner. There's no hope in that king. And at this point, it definitely seems as if Nebuchadnezzar is in the driving seat because in Jehoiachin's place, or Nebuchadnezzar appoints his uncle to be king over those left in Judah. But in reality, he's no king at all. His name is changed to a Babylonian name, Zedekiah, just to remind everyone who this guy really works for. He's a puppet king. He does exactly what Nebuchadnezzar tells him to do. And you guessed it, he does evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's definitely no hope in this king either. Or is there? Because have a look at the end of chapter 24. Right at the end, we're told that he rebels against the king of Babylon. Like Pinocchio, Zedekiah says, there are no strings attached to me. I'm not going to be your puppet king any longer. And we wonder, is this the new hope? The new hope. But if you know your original Star Wars trilogy well, well, we know what comes after a new hope. Well, the empire strikes back. The empire will strike back. And that is exactly what happens in the final chapter of Kings. And we're going to have that first part read to us now. Uh, so that's 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 1. If you've got to open your Bibles, we'll have that read to us by Anne. Thank you. Just the first three verses for now. On the day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. So remember, remember, we're searching for some hope in the midst of all of these failing kings. But we'll see in this final chapter, in reality, well, it's a downward spiral where things just go from bad to bad to worse. So there's some pretty scary details, aren't there, that were given in those verses we just had read for us. Zedekiah rebels, and how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Well, the empire really does strike back. He sends his whole army, not just a few battalions or regiments, the whole army. And if you've ever watched uh, an action movie, you'll be able to picture this scene. It's, it's like Voldemort outside of Hogwarts. Thanos and, and his thousands of troops troops as he faces the Avengers, or the vast armies of Maud or surrounding Minas Tirith, whatever your pick of the bunch is, we can picture what's going on here. Here in this passage, there are thousands of Babylonian soldiers, and they surround Jerusalem. And did you see what they do next? They don't try and take the city just yet. No. They set up camp, and they would build these, these mighty siege works around the city, meaning no one was getting out. And so there is no hope in fighting back. And this is the crazy part. It's like, it's like this for two years. It's the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign at the beginning, and it's still going on in the 11th. And as you can imagine, things were absolutely desperate inside of that city. We're told that there's no food for the people to eat. Nothing. The city was surrounded. The city starved. And we ask again, what hope is there for God's people? Well, let's have a read of verse 4 to 7. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards Arabah, 
but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and, and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, whose, where, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. It's pretty rough stuff we've just read there, isn't it? Any hope that the Babylonians might be defeated in battle is gone. Instead, we see that the vast army camped around Jerusalem, but it finally breaks through the city walls. There is no hope in the city or its defenses. And a mad panic follows, as we would imagine. Judah's army is far from being ready to stand and fight. Well, they are seized with fear and they make a run for it. They try to escape. But of course, the Babylonian armies, they've gone nowhere. And so it's all too easy for this surrounding force just to catch up with them, with these starved and scared troops of Judah. And King Zedekiah is among them, running for his life. But when the Babylonians catch up with them, well, they separate the king's troops from the king, and Zedekiah is left vulnerable and alone. And he's captured. And on being captured, he's taken to stand trial before the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. There's no chance of a, of a lenient or merciful sentence here. The might of the Babylonian empire was coming crashing down on Judah. Zedekiah is found guilty, and he's forced to watch his sons killed in front of his very own eyes. There will be no successors to the throne in the line of Zedekiah. And after killing his sons, they blind him. They put out his eyes. It's a striking depiction, isn't it? It's a horrible scene. A little bit pathetic as well. The mighty king of Judah... And now he stands alone, beaten, blinded. The last thing that he would have seen was the death of his sons. This utterly defeated figure is chained up and marched off to Babylon, to exile, to never be seen again. There is no hope then in this king. And we're thinking it cannot, cannot get any worse than this. Surely this is as low as it can go. Well, let's find out what happens next in verse 8 to 12. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, um, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commanding of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. Thank you again, Anne. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, just when we thought it couldn't get any worse, it gets a whole lot worse. Because Nebuchadnezzar isn't done yet. And God's judgment upon his people 
for their repeated rejection of him, well, that's not complete yet either. I don't think we'll be ever able to feel the full weight of these verses. But for God's Old Testament people, as they look back at this event and heard this being read to them, well, they would have been left in pieces. The temple, the place that they loved, where God would meet with his people in a special and unique way, the place that Solomon decorated so beautifully, well, it's destroyed. The symbolism is crushing, isn't it? As the people of Judah desperately search for hope, they see the place where they had once called out to God going up in smoke. There is no hope in the temple. Nebuchadnezzar's armies and his commander, they set fire to the lot. Not just the temple, not just the palaces, but every important building in the city. They even destroy the walls around the city, leaving Jerusalem defenseless. This, this depiction here in 2 Kings 25 well, it reminds me of other cities throughout history. We think back to the mid-20th century, to cities like London, particularly on Remembrance Sunday today, and we think of these mighty, proud, prosperous cities, so much going for it, and yet they're brought down in the bombing of the Blitz. So many important buildings gone. Or to other cities like Nagasaki, a thriving city before 1945, but completely and utterly leveled, the before and after of the atomic bomb. We think back to those historic instances, and they help us to picture what is going on here. Jerusalem, the jewel of God's people, well, it's been utterly destroyed. And at the end of it all, when the city lies in ruins, the Babylonians, well, they take the people, those who have survived, and they carry them off into exile, into Babylon, out of Jerusalem, out of Judah, out of the promised land. So at the end, we read in verse 21, have a look down. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. There was no hope in the people either. How are you feeling at this point? Maybe like a, a bloody and bruised boxer in the corner of a ring. We've had enough. We've had enough. We can't take any more. God's people are at the very lowest point. And hope? Well, hope feels like a distant memory, doesn't it? God's people are at the very lowest point in their history. Now, before you say, Steve, hold on, the Babylonians left some people in the land. Well, maybe they would survive and eventually thrive, and God's people would be restored. No. We won't look at the verses now, but in verse 13 to 26, it's just more of the same. We're told how the Babylonians plunder and steal the wealth of the city. We're told that they, they gather all the leaders and the priests from among the people, and they execute them. And just when we think things really must be at their absolute lowest, we're then told that the few people who were left, the few who were left in Judah, well, they begin a rebellion against the commander that Nebuchadnezzar had left in Judah. They assassinate him. But the result is that the people are so afraid of the revenge that Nebuchadnezzar will take upon them that they all flee for their lives. They run to Egypt. Every single remaining person from amongst God's people in Judah, well, they all run away to Egypt. And God's promised land is left empty, destitute, destroyed, devoid of hope. This is probably the lowest point, I think, 
in the whole history of God's people. It doesn't get any worse than this. Can you feel the, the weight of that this evening? Because the writer of Kings is really trying to tell us just how bad things got. But if you're not one for, for history, maybe that's not your cup of tea. Another part of the Bible covers this episode too. Not so much in a detailed recording of events, but in poetry. And in Lamentations 2, hopefully you can see that on the screen, well, we see 2 Kings 25 in poetic form. And it'd be great this evening, just for a few moments, if we could turn together in groups, perhaps with the people you're sat next to and came with, to discuss what strikes you from these verses, a different angle on 2 Kings 25, to what strikes you, what leaves you feeling shocked? How does it make you feel? What strikes you, what shocks you, how does it make you feel? Just a few minutes to discuss with those around you as we look at those verses. Okay, not long, I know. I'm sure there's lots we could pick from these verses. Uh, just a few people to share. What did you find shocking? What shocked you? That it was the Lord's doing. Yeah, thank you. A few people saying that. Yeah, this is from the Lord. How, how does it make us, make us feel as we look at those verses from Lamentations? Yeah, no hope. Yeah, absolutely hopeless. Thank you, yeah. Lamentations helps us to feel just how bad things got. But it also helps us to see that behind it all was God. That whilst Babylon was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem, it was all part of God's right and fair and good judgment against his people. And that's perhaps the hardest thing to hear of all. And so we've almost come to the very end of this book, to the very end of Kings, to this series. And we're thinking, well, we're just four verses to go. This must be the point where we're given some hope. We're desperate to find some hope, aren't we? A conclusion that will give us some peace. Is this the bit where at long last we can breathe a sigh of relief? Well, let's find out. And thank you again. Verses 27 to 30. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoi, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year Arwell Marduk, became king of Babylon. He released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor, higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim, put aside his prison clothes, and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. Is that it? Is that it? Is that how it ends? What? After all that, after the death and the destruction and utter hopelessness of God's people, we're left with this? With Jehoiachin, remember him. Do you remember him, Jehoiachin? Well, he's taken off into exile quite a bit beforehand into, into Babylon, before Zedekiah was made into a puppet king. Yeah, him. Well, this action-packed drama ends with the camera zooming out off of Jerusalem, panning north and zooming in on Babylon and on to Jehoiachin. And we're told that he is set free from prison, allowed to get out of his bright orange clothing, because he's not in prison anymore, and he's allowed to eat with the king of Babylon, and he's given 
some pocket money. The end. And it's anticlimactic. It's uninspiring. It leaves us with so many unanswered questions. Lizzie got us thinking a moment ago about line of duty and the 83% of watchers who were left unsatisfied. Well, here, 100% of readers of Kings are left unsatisfied. I don't know about you, but it leaves me feeling frustrated, annoyed, wanting more, and unsatisfied. But that's the point. That's the point. In many ways, that's the whole point of Kings. The book deliberately leaves us feeling unsatisfied. It wants us to be desperately looking for hope. It doesn't want us to settle for the likes of Zedekiah and Jehoiachin. It wants us to long for a better king. So that when he comes, when that king comes, we will be all the more grateful. So that when that king comes, well, he won't disappoint us. He won't lead us astray. He doesn't do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, when that king comes, our jaws will be left on the floor. I remember um, when I was first going out with Sarah, trying to choose... Actually, I won't show that picture just yet. I can't get it off. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> no one saw. No one saw. It's fine. I remember when I was first going out with Sarah a few years back, trying to find an engagement ring. Very exciting. And I remember looking at all the different shop windows and some very nice rings, but it's really hard to tell just, just how you know, nice is that stone, how shiny is that stone. But it was made a whole lot easier when you go inside and they sit you down and they talk about color and quality and all the kinds of things I've forgotten about now. And they get out the ring that you want to look at and they put it on a black velvet cushion. And suddenly, those diamonds that you couldn't really see in the shop window before, well, they shine like nothing else. Because they're on that black backdrop. They show just how good, how quality that diamond is. Now, the story of kings is this black velvet cushion. It shows us just how bad, just how dark things go when we go against God, when we go it alone. And it leaves us loving Jesus so much more because we can now see just how brightly he shines in comparison to everything and everyone else. There is no real hope in this chapter. Sorry to disappoint. In Kings 25, there is no hope. But we do see in that slightly pathetic figure of Jehoiachin in exile, we do see that he's repeatedly called in those final four verses the king of Judah. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? But it's telling us that the line is not broken. The royal line that we see at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Grab your Bibles, if you can, and turn to Matthew chapter 1. It's page 965 in our Pew Bibles. Page 965 in Matthew chapter 1. And what we're given here is a royal line of all the kings of God's people of Judah. And you might spot some familiar names along that long list in the royal line. People like Solomon, where we started our series. Rehoboam, all the way down to kings like Josiah. And around the time of the Babylonian exile, 
Jehoiachin, although I think he's called a different name here. And then we get ten generations later down, and we hear of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. The Messiah. Messiah means God's chosen ruler, the promised king. And that was Jesus. A king who would perfectly obey God. A king about whom God would say, this is my son with whom I am so pleased. Listen to him. A king who would not lead God's people into destruction and exile, but into God's kingdom. A king who would not lead us into to sin and idol worship, but into a deep and wonderful and personal relationship with God. So for us here this evening, as we close, if you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, then he is your king. Feel, feel the weight off your shoulders. Feel the joy. Feel the relief of that this evening. God is always true to his word. We've seen that this evening in the terrible judgment he brings on Judah. But we also see that in the coming of the promised king. But we can also recognize that Jesus is our king. Our king who gives us light to those who dwell in darkness. So as we head into Christmas... It's not too far away now, is it? I won't ask you how many days it is. We did that last week, I think. Well, we can see that Jesus isn't in a manger still, that he's not a baby in the straw. Jesus isn't just a a swear word to be thrown off of our lips. Jesus isn't just some historic figure to be read about when we come to church. Jesus is the living king, God's promised king. And for us here this evening, for each and every one of us. He can be your king. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you in him we find hope. Hope in the darkness. Lord God, we thank you for this series in Kings, that black velvet cushion that shows us just how dark things get when we don't go with you. Help us to leave St. Luke's this evening knowing just how brightly Jesus shines. Lord, if we haven't gone to him already, may we, may we speak to him this evening. May we ask him to be king of our lives so that we can know the freedom of that, of that weight off of our shoulders, so that we can know that hope, so that we can know that peace. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Amen.